Vodka. 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 Vodka o'clock. Hello, everyone. I should say good morning because it's morning, very, very early morning here uh, at Vodka Clock Podcast. And uh, you are listening either through Stitcher or iTunes, perhaps, or directly at amberonmass.com. And don't forget, we are labeled as an explicit website and podcast. So if you're easily offended or under 18, this is probably not the place for you. Uh, we might have some minor spoilers talking with today's guest, Monty Nero, as we discuss his comic, Death Sentence. Monty, welcome to the show. Hello, Amber. Thanks for having me on. This is so great. Uh, so you're over there in uh, Scotland, you said, eh? Dundee, Scotland. Yeah, yeah. One of the most uh, remote and unfashionable places in the world. <laughs> so everybody assumes that you know Grant Morrison, right? Oh, yeah, because all the Scottish people hang out together. Of course you do. All the- <laughs> anyway, he spends most of his time in Los Angeles these days. Uh, I see, I see. That's okay. Yeah, I'm in New Jersey, and everybody just assumes I'm in New York and, like, always in New York. And I'm like, no, I avoid New York. Yeah, yeah. I, I was look, I was over in New York recently. It was my first time in the States. And uh, I remember I had a friend from uh, New Jersey, and I used to, because of her accent, I used to assume she was from New York and kept forgetting, and she used to get really, really angry. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little, we are a little protective about that. Yeah, so that that taught me there's a big difference. I yeah, but that was you were here for Comic Con, and I kept hoping to run into you there. Yeah, it was it was very very uh, chaotic, and um, I was sorry I couldn't uh, hook up with you. It wasn't for the want of trying. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, thank goodness for Twitter. We just like kept in touch. Absolutely. Um, but those, you know, those folks over at Titan Comics are just delightful. I mean, I, I was so glad that I got to stop by the booth and, and introduce myself in person and really get to talk to them. Um, hey, they're really good people. Uh, yeah. If you're going to make a comic, I recommend them. And um, they're very straight. Uh, but also, they're just huge. They're huge enthusiasts. Um, they don't publish anything unless they're like massively enthusiastic about it. And they bring all that enthusiasm to bear, which, you know, you probably saw uh, when you were chatting to them. You can't really fake that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. They were so friendly and so energetic. And it's hard to it's hard to keep that energy going during a, a convention. Yeah, yeah. There's so, so many hours that you guys have to work at a booth. And they're, it's exhausting. Yeah. No, they, were, so, they really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it as well. It was a hell of a shock. Going to the New York Con, it was a lot bigger than what I'm used to. <laughs> yeah, I was like a little church mouse in the middle of all this like crazy, uh, crazy cosmopolitan uh, comic festival. And um, yeah, it was it was uh, it was great for us because we sold out, and um, it was really surprising to see how well it was selling in America. Um, so that was uh, that was really good. Well, that's what's, you know, it's great about New York for that reason. I mean, it's it's kind of an overwhelming show, but there are people that you will only see there. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, that's why it's worth that effort to just kind of put up with the chaos. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was huge. And it was uh, also, I was, I was quite overwhelmed with uh, Manhattan as well, because I'd never been there before. Uh, that's a hell of a city. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yeah, very expensive as well. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed it is. Uh, but uh, I liked uh, I liked Central Park. That was my favorite part. Maybe oh. maybe it was because that was the only place that people weren't trying to get money out of me. <laughs> <laughs> lie on the grass and enjoy the sun and uh, look at all the incredible characters doing their roller skating and ballet dancing and 
choral singing or whatever was going on that day. It was fantastic. And um, I've had a really nice diner as well. Really nice diner, really good diner. And that was that was very cool. Yeah, that's something New York and New Jersey do very well. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. It was. It couldn't have been better. It was just randomly, it was just the closest diner to my hotel. But um, we spent like every day, <laughs> every day there, just because we loved it so much. The service is incredible. It's so quick and tasty and good. It was like amazing. If you sit down in a, in a cafe in Dundee, you'll be waiting like 20 minutes till someone comes over and asks you what you want. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> in this diner, it was like you know you'd have your like uh, your coffee and uh, your 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 first course within like about sort of two minutes. It was incredible. Oh, that's a great. What kind of conventions do you have over there? Oh, we have some quite big ones down in um, London and so forth. Um, but I tend to I tend to prefer to go to smaller ones. Um, I like I like conventions where it's not really very showbiz and where you can all just sort of chat. As kind of equals. Yeah, me too. Not any kind of division between oh, here's the stars of the show and here's the uh, here's the um, kind of punters. Just like everybody likes comics and they can all kind of talk about them and show their enthusiasm. And I tend I tend to find that happens better at uh, smaller shows. And there's some fantastic uh, smaller conventions in the UK that um, I really enjoy. I really enjoy going to. Well. When you were in New York, did you actually have time to go around the show, or yeah, because you you had specific signing times? Right? Yeah, a little bit I did. Um, I only actually got to see about half of it, but um, I was uh, I did see quite a lot of other stuff. Okay, I was going to say because like the artist alley section in the pavilion area that had its like, own wing of the Javits Center. Yeah. That's that in itself was like its very own Comic Con. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was more like the vibe of the sort of cons that I'm used to. So right, yeah, that's where I like to spend my time. I like to go over there. The, the Artist Alley is is really nicer. Yeah, I like that. Um, did you uh, meet anybody that you you know in the business or, or that you had been excited to meet for the first time? I met Jim Steranko. That was exciting. <laughs> um, me too. <laughs> it was great. Legend. What a legend. He, he doesn't disappoint. I've been like following his Twitter stream. Oh, his Twitter is the best. His fascination, and uh, when you meet him, he, he doesn't disappoint. It's very much like what you see is what you get, and uh, just like bewitched by his incredible hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me like the meatiest handshake known to man, and uh, we had a nice little chat just about what he was doing and what I was doing and so forth. Um, you did a little bit of a signing at the Titan booth because I think he was doing some prints. Yeah, because tightened all kinds of merchandise as well as um, comics, and um, yeah, that was really cool. I, I met quite a few Marvel guys. That was nice. Um, they were all very, uh, very intelligent and uh, clued in, you know, on what makes a cool, cool comic. So that was heartening to see. Um, yeah, it was it was a good it was a good trip. Well, that's fantastic. So, do you have you know have that? Feeling when because you get to be on the other side of the table and signing books and stuff, does that freak you out at all? Does it just blow your mind that people are coming up because they need to, they want to meet you? Um, no, because as I said, um, I always just see it as a very sort of equal thing. You know, what side of the table you're at, it doesn't really matter if you're enthusiastic about comics or the same comics. So you just sort of, you know, meet and chat in a very sort of normal way, like you would in a pub. Um, so um, what side of the table I'm on doesn't really make any difference to me. 
But um, I get completely freaked out by the fact that people in America read the comic or read my work or know who I am. <laughs> totally freaks me out. Um, it's amazing, you know, you get all these um, messages from people in places you've never heard of, let alone been, and they're like massively enthusiastic about it. And the fact that it sort of travels that that far from just something in your head to something you type that then goes out around the world and all these people get excited about it. It's amazing. It really, uh, really, really thrills me. Yeah. That's- well, yeah, that definitely speaks to those those great folks at Titan because they're the ones that got it in my hands. And mm. you know. Yeah, it sold about 10 times more by going through Titan than it would have done if I just published it on my own as I was planning to. So, yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy with them. Yeah, it was, you know, and they're, they're really interactive about it, too. Like if I, you know, when I, I get the a preview of, you know, a few pages and I, and I like something and I mention it on Twitter, then they immediately know to identify the person's Twitter name mm. so we can start following each other as well oh. and make, you know, make that other connection. Cool. That's, yeah, yeah. Um, so... We're going to talk about death sentence so that people know what we're talking about. And part of, part of it is um, I'll talk about the, the marketing of it because it was pretty brilliant. Um, so the basic information is that there's this new sexually transmitted disease. It acts very quickly. People die within months. And during the time when this G virus is active, they get these special powers and abilities. So um, what... Monty has done is he's taken like three very fringe uh, punk rock style characters and we'll talk about each of the characters and um, like the wildest people, the high risk people and um, focused on them because uh, these, these are the ones that, you know, people would point to in the media as examples. Like when, you know, was it Magic Johnson tested HIV positive or something? It was like this big, huge deal. Um, So here we've got the G virus. And if you're G positive, um, that has a very unique, unlike any other virus kind of quality to it. Um, So uh, first, give us a little introduction to the rest of the creative team. Oh, okay. It's uh, me and Mike, uh, Mike Dowling. Uh, he's a really good uh, sequential artist. He's done a lot of work for uh, 2000 AD and um, uh, Titan, and uh, he did a bit of work for Vertigo. <clears throat> he's a really, really good uh, artist. His style is kind of like a little bit jock, a little bit Sean Phillips, um, but um, without copying those guys, he's very much his own his own guy. Um, and um, he does all the the sequential pages. And then I, I write it and do the covers and I design the characters and it came up with the you know, kind of basic concept of it all and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's just us two. And we just made it to self-publish. Um, I was going to print it and publish it myself. And then at some point, um, you know, Titan heard about it and um, decided they wanted to publish it and they, they did a much better job of it than I would have done. So that was good. Yeah, that's it's a great job. Um, so Mike does the colors as well. Yeah, he does everything. He's a he's a he's a real talented man. Um, it's really quite because I'm an artist too. I really appreciate just how good he is to be able to do the pencils, inks, and colors to that standard. And um, 
you know, keep control of everything. He's a great storyteller. That's fantastic, you know, small moments, small character moments, uh, but also, you know, big, epic, dramatic moments. He can, <clears throat> he can do the whole thing. He's, he's, a, he's a, a real name to watch. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, it's, like you were saying, the style really had to match the story. And, yeah. um, and in this case, like I mentioned, we have these characters who <clears throat> have these reputations for being, uh, you know, edgy. And and the art fits that so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess they are. I kind of think of them as kind of fairly normal characters, but I think that's probably what you're saying is probably the reality of how it'll appear to most people. But exactly, yeah. How how a regular person, you know, gets up and goes to their job, whereas <laughs> these three are very different. Yeah. Whereas what I tried to do was just kind of like uh, capture the essence of sort of uh, life as I saw it lived around me. Um, sort of over the last sort of uh, sort of few years, growing up and kind of doing a few things and going a few places. Um, but I just wanted to sort of um, capture that kind of tone and mood and put it into a comic and make something that was kind of relevant to people's lives that they could relate to, characters they could relate to. I find a lot of comics characters, especially superpowered comics characters, the the the, the protagonists in them, I can't relate to them at all. They're not people that I recognise. Um, as being real um, and their sort of attitudes, the way they look, the way they behave, um, I can't. I just, I just can't relate to it. So I wanted to just get that sense of uh, of reality into it. And um, I guess because I've worked, I've always worked in sort of art, uh, worked in computer games, um, kind of like you know, played drums in a band for a bit, that kind of thing. So I guess the kind of people that I'm familiar with are kind of more bohemian, creative people. So that sort of comes across into the into the book, but nonetheless, um, yeah, I wasn't trying to make them edgy or anything. I was just writing about what I knew. <laughs> See, you live a much wilder life than uh, you probably thought you did. Yeah, you know, like you're not getting up and going to some terrible job in a store. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and yeah, exactly, and working for ten hour shifts making almost nothing (laughs) and just being miserable you know like those like uh the guys in uh shawn of the dead yeah like they get up and go to their their miserable job and then go to the pub for a pint and then they go home and do it again i mean and uh, i have done jobs like that too because if you're an artist as any artist will tell you when you start out being an artist it's very you gotta do very difficult to to earn a living so you do you do like you do crappy part-time jobs for for a, a long time so you can get yourself sorted to do enough art to sort of earn a living from that. So you just take any job going. So I was working. I had this sense that I didn't want to, I wasn't going to be doing this job forever because I wanted to be an artist. I was going to be an artist. Um, so I wanted to do something useful. So I took a job as a, a care assistant. I used to work in a sort of old people's home, sort of looking after people with Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's a tough job. Yeah, and that was that was a, that was a tough job, and uh, I did that for about a year while I was sort of um, trying to get. I was doing odd jobs as an artist, and I sort of eventually built up into getting like a full time kind of thing. So um, yeah, I do I do know. I think most artists know that kind of side of life because um, you know it's very very tricky to just come straight out of school and start earning a good living as an artist. Um, so yeah. Um, I think also looking back now, now I've finished the series. Looking back on it, I think because now I'm like married and happily settled, and I've got a daughter, um, I live quite a stable life. 
and it's a lot quieter than it used to be. So I think probably a lot of this kind of this kind of like uh, excitement came out in the writing and the sort of art and the, the writing that I was doing at that time, because you know I wasn't doing anything like that in my in my personal life, because um, that's not conducive to having like a little baby and a toddler and so forth. So I think in retrospect, probably it was all coming out through the sort of artwork instead. Um, but that only occurred to me recently when I'm like looking back on it. That's good. Yeah, I guess it's it's okay to have some wish fulfillment. It's you know it's what great fiction does for us, and it does that for the reader too. Yeah, yeah. You know, because the, these characters that we have, there's a rock star, an artist, and a comedian, a really vulgar comedian. Yeah, yeah. So you say. I mean, I don't I don't find him any. I think he's less vulgar than a lot of um, the actual comedians that he's kind of inspired by. <laughs> Probably, uh, Pro- yeah. But um, yeah, certainly, if you look at the sort of tone of most comedy over the last sort of twenty, thirty years, that's kind of been like usually successful and cool. It tends to be, you know, very, very rude, and uh, and that's why it's kind of funny. It's partly why it's funny. Even go back to like Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy when he was like eighteen and so forth. Oh yeah, yeah. And like through to the sort of comedians we have today. Yeah, like Sam Kinison. I mean, those guys, they, you know, yeah. they they really set the bar. Yeah, it just gets more and more extreme as, as time goes on. So, so uh, again, wanting to keep things real, you just sort of, you have to reflect that. It's quite an interesting challenge because you want to, if you've got a great comedian and you're trying to, like, write a character that's kind of similar, you know, a great comedian is obviously a genius, you know, what they do. And you've got to try and kind of come up with dialogue and, scenes that kind of are convincing um, without copying anything that they've said or done or any of their uh, jokes or anything. Um, so that's actually quite difficult because I'm quite obviously not a brilliant comedian. <laughs> <laughs> so as a writer, I just thought that was a really interesting challenge. And also I hadn't seen a character like that in comics or um, anything I'd read. So I thought, again, that would be fresh and interesting for me. Yeah, I hadn't seen it in comics either. He, His look, anyway... Um reminded me uh, this uh this is the character monty yeah and you you know so you gave him gave him your name but he looks like russell brand he's like a very x-rated version of like russell brand yeah yeah he does a little bit yeah and certainly uh there's a lot of uh comedians that are he's inspired by um like um frankie boyle and uh um others that are regularly on british tv on like game shows and panel shows and stuff um and uh, he he was one of them, absolutely. And I think <clears throat> I think Mike uh, kind of brought that out a little bit more with the way that he drew the character. Um, so um, it's kind of like uh, um, you know that's probably where you pick up on the Russell Brand thing in particular. Um, and uh, he's just he's just like a real exciting character to write because he does things that nobody else would do. And he kind of responds to situations in ways that are like really entertaining and believable, but also kind of surprising. And um, that's exciting. You know, that makes. Uh, and, and also, I take the piss out of them quite a lot. Um, I take the piss out of everything, really. <laughs> that's my. Uh, it's the British way. We're sort of like always, always uh, making fun of, uh, of uh, people in positions of power. Which always used to be, you know, sort of politicians or whatever. But now, you know, it tends to be more, you know, people that have sway over people tend to be more like celebrities and comedians and 
rock stars and so forth. So I'm kind of thinking, well, why is that? And um, this is clearly nonsensical. And uh, it's very easy to sort of um, take the mickey out of <laughs> that kind of thing. Especially, yeah. especially um, you know, Russell Brand started uh, philosophizing recently and sort of explaining his various uh, political theories, which uh, are very entertaining and, and easy to take them <laughs> take them out. It's easy. It's easy to really, yeah. When they're when they're at that point, you know, like the like Lady Gaga, you know, or Kesha. I mean, yeah. they, when they they get to that, their lives must be so bizarre, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's it's not a very healthy uh, way to be. And um, uh, if you think about the people that had the most incredible success and sort of uh, love from uh, the masses, <clears throat> people like Michael Jackson. I mean, it's just not healthy, is it? It just no, yeah. There's nothing that seemed healthy about that no, that life. It's not good for you to be in that position, and um, it's a very dramatic thing to write about. So um, I, I cover that in the, in the, the Destiny story. You know that uh, a lot of people that are, are kind of held up as icons and success stories are actually living, you know, quite um, dramatic and sad and um, uh, surprising lives, kind of like behind the facade. So. Um, that makes for good drama. That makes for good uh, stories. So um, that's why I, I kind of wrote about that kind of thing. Yeah, when you compare the characters, there's Verity. She's the artist. And then you've got Weasel, the rock star. And Monty is the this outrageous comedian type. But Monty seems to have the most deliberate plans. Yeah. Where, you know, whereas the other ones are sort of like, shit is happening to them yeah and they're, and they're in reaction mode yeah. but he's a planner yeah that's right um it's basically you're trying to tell the story of this virus and this uh situation uh in society and you're using these three characters to tell that story but you're telling like three sides of, a, of the same story really so um they all have things in common like they're all creative and creativity is a big theme of the comic like what creativity is why it's kind of beneficial um what the point of it are, is in relation to to your life and how it helps and um you know how to be creative all those kind of things are like major themes in the in the comic um and um you you need to see all sides of the story so so each character has a kind of different kind of approach and kind of philosophy verities um she's like the emotional heart of the story she's the the character that you um, would most immediately relate to, um, and uh, she's probably the most down to earth and normal one, <clears throat> certainly in a sort of moral outlook. Yeah, definitely, I got that same feeling. Yeah, and uh, Weasel's just like a fuck up and a chaotic like uh, chancer. He's one of those guys that's um, successful, but successful way beyond his talent, which you see a lot in um, the music business. Particularly, you see people that just have a, a level of adulation that is vastly inflated from their actual level of talent, which seems to unsettle them, and uh, in my opinion, tends to lead to a lot of sort of problems with sort of you know uh, drug abuse and alcohol uh, use of alcohol and things like that. Um, and then Monty is much more a guy. He's incredibly talented, um, but he's also very arrogant, and um, uh, he he's much more kind of in control of what he's doing. And, and as you say, he's like a plotter and a planner, and uh, in 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 not necessarily a nice way, even though he's very charming. 
you got that difference between like people's surface charm and and how easy they are to get along with and they're amusing and you sort of like being with them but they can still be complete bastards <laughs> well he's got this almost mentalist quality where when he talks to people there's no way they're not going to listen to him and they're mesmerized they're hypnotized by him when he's talking yeah it's like every kind of conversation or, or it's like a performance he's like he's, he's always on he's always like um, you get that sense with um, some comedians. It's like you see them on stage and you see them like being interviewed, or you see like those sort of mobile phone footage of them sort of relaxing, you know, uh, in the pub or backstage or whatever, wherever it might be. And and um, sometimes you know the persona on stage is like how the person is, and that's why they're such a great kind of comedian is because it's not like they're really stretching to sort of create this this persona that they sort of project. It's more like in order to cope in life, in order to get on in life, they've created this kind of personality and that's who they are as they've grown up. And uh, that just extends through and works really well in a sort of showbiz um, scenario. People like that, you know, they're obviously uh, very rare and extremely talented and very clever at what they do. Um, But it's not like something he's putting on. He's just like, he's always like uh, entertaining. He's always like performing to the crowd. He always wants to be the centre of attention. Some people are just like that, you know. You see them down a pub, so so um, that's how I sort of see his his character. Oh yeah, it's not even in a pub. I mean, if you go to a, a corporate boardroom meeting, yeah, there's always somebody that has to be that person. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting character to write about. They're larger than life, and it makes a good makes for a good story. Now, um, now Verity, one of the things that you talked about about how she is like the heart of the story. There's a great scene where she is losing her mind because she needs to create and like you know like she's starting to like slip and go just bonkers. Yeah. Um and just I think somebody tweeted it the other day. They like posted that panel where she's like I must create. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, uh that's an issue for um that's that's a really important like the theme of the book um and I think everybody on some level i think everybody on some level is is creative um and I think it's a natural kind of human characteristic i think it's a big part of why humans have kind of developed into being the dominant species because we can create and we do have imagination we can imagine things beyond what is actually kind of our reality at this moment and then uh and then go and create it. And that, that is a huge part of why uh, we managed to sort of build kind of things that didn't exist before, like tools and, you know, cities and civilizations and all the complex stuff that we take for granted. It all comes from the fact that we were sitting there without those things and we imagined it and then we went and created it. So I think it's, an, it's part of our DNA is to be creative. And um, uh, it's not just something that people in the so-called creative arts kind of have it's something everybody has now a lot of people in their lives because of the lives they lead they can't be creative and that is sort of beaten out of them or it's taught to them as being not a good thing or it's not advantageous to their sort of financial welfare or whatever it might be but i think if that is the case then you'll you'll kind of suffer your kind of spirit will kind of like dampen on some level um and um you'll find a sort of yearning for something in your life and that will come out in other ways uh, that aren't necessarily positive. Um, so that's kind of one of the principles behind a lot of the behaviour that you see in the comic is is uh, that kind of observation on on creativity and the role of it in in, in society. 
So why did you pick three very distinctly creative characters then and not throw like a ringer in there of one person who's sitting behind a desk shuffling papers around and contracted the virus? Yeah, um, I probably will come back to that sort of character at some point. Um, but I think initially, um, I, I tend to, when I'm writing something or creating something, I always try and think about what haven't I seen before. And I've seen those kind of everyman characters a lot. And, you know, most comics or stories have those kind of characters in them. It's a very, very predictable and safe way to sort of get <clears throat> reader empathy and to sort of um, relate to people. Um, so it's perfectly valid. And I'm sure, you know, it can be done in an interesting way and uh, so forth. But I just wanted to go into sort of the whole point of doing the comic was to do things that I hadn't seen done anywhere else and to try things that I hadn't seen done and to try and make them work and um, that meant doing these kind of more kind of unusual characters that I hadn't seen in comic books before that's that's great yeah it's good that if you if you identified something um, you wanted to you well first of all identifying something that's missing is really hard to do yeah um, yeah you know that's great I, I always try to do that whenever I'm writing a scene even if uh, it's like a scene that might have been um, something that you might see in another comic I'll always think well how can I turn this into something that I haven't seen before and find a way to do it in a way that I haven't seen before so it's a huge question I ask myself before I write anything is how do you make this kind of feel fresh and interesting um but you can't be too out there. If you go too out there, then you sort of you lose track of any kind of coherent, kind of relatable plot, and uh, it just becomes like intellectual wanking. You know, you're just not really delivering a, a good story. And um, I love I love good commercial you know stories. I love like you know I love art films, but I love Hollywood blockbusters as well. I love action films. I I love all these things. So I, I wanted to do something that had all these elements in one. So I don't see just because you've got a great kind of action-led plot and there's loads of action and uh, exciting kind of uh, scenes and um, so forth and comedy and death in it. But there's also like a layer underneath it where it all kind of means something and kind of amounts to something greater than the, the some of its parts. So um, that was what I was trying to do. So can you talk about the the story element to it about the government's involvement without spoiling it? Do you think it, that you can give anything away? Yeah. Um, it's, again, it's the same sort of thing that I was talking about with the characters, where I just wanted to make it real and something you could relate to and something that seemed like it could exist in the, in the, in the real world. So um, there's very few people in government who are genuinely kind of nefarious or villainous or anything. So even though the government in the story, they're antagonistic in that they kind of are working in opposition to the three main characters. Um, I just try and present it in a way that's uh, kind of credible. So you've got all these different kind of agencies and um, bureaus and within the government and and uh, they're all, you know, got different agendas and um, they're, they're not, um, they're basically a disparate collection of individuals um, as you find in real life. Um, and uh, they're trying to control the virus and they're trying to protect the public. But in doing that, they're also they're also infringing civil liberties and you know established principles of justice. And you can see that in the war on terror, in you know, this balance between you know 
trying to genuinely protect people and also infringing on people's civil liberties through the sort of prison program and the surveillance and um, other things they need to do in their eyes in order to protect everybody. So it's nuanced. It's not like um, they're 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 sort of evil people. It's you know, as a writer, I can see all sides of it, and I'm trying to present it in kind of like a credible way. But um, within the story, obviously, they are antagonistic forces to the, uh, the the three main characters who want to be free and want to do their own thing. Now, would you normally think of government as more dangerous than private entities because Things things are certainly opening up here in the U.S. with how dangerous private corporations are. Well, that's the thing. Uh, so much of government now is is um, privatized. In that, um, whereas it used to be there'd be a civil service that would uh, be sort of publicly funded that would do something, whether it be you know provide healthcare or, or administrate you know uh, uh, an office, and now that is subcontracted to a private company that obviously. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, has its own, you know, agenda, which is basically to make as much money as it can. So, so that means that they're going to make choices that aren't necessarily in sort of, um, public good. Um, they're just the cheapest way to do something. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 the differentiation between, uh, public and private, I think, is, is blurred all over the world now. So in this particular story, what we have, like I said, is a uh, a virus that's contracted and, and gets around and stuff. So the medical and science part of this and how it gives these characters these strange abilities, and was there something that you actually, you know, that actually influenced that? You know, did you come, like, right now there's all sorts of radiation considerations going on with uh you know nuclear meltdowns and stuff and that's the sort of stuff that like inspired the incredible hulk so was there something that that was implanted in your brain to say okay you know i'm going to tackle this and i'm going to make it a virus i'm not going to make this an implant i'm not going to make it a pill i'm not going to you know you specifically made it a virus yeah i think um the the thing that interested me was it being a sexually transmitted virus I think that's an interesting idea because it means that you can choose whether to expose yourself to that virus or not. And that's dramatically very powerful. Um, um, if it's just a virus, then it's just something that <clears throat> you could catch or you could not catch. And it's kind of random chance. And it's kind of sad and um, so forth. But it's not really good storytelling. So with it being sexually transmitted, it um, opens up this whole sphere of the fact that some idiots could deliberately catch the virus because they want to be sort of super successful and powerful for six months. Um, and they don't care or think about the fact that you're going to die at the end of that, which is obviously a sort of satirical comment on, you know, the way people treat celebrity these days and the sort of harm they do to each other uh, or themselves when they're trying to sort of gain this like uh, this kind of like uh, fame and adulation that they're so desperate for. So um, I thought that was a really interesting uh, idea. And then obviously, growing up in a society that's kind of sex-obsessed and, um, uh, you know, AIDS is like a, a major sort of uh, um, factor that it, in a way that it wasn't sort of like um, in the 60s. I just think it's sort of a relevant thing to be talking about in uh, any sort of media. Um, so 
uh, that all kind of that's just part of like the world that I've grown up in. So you just want to reflect things and the themes that you see around you and put them into put them into a bit of artwork. Obviously, that's you know that's going to be a, a really big part of it before people are aware of the virus discovery and you know how it was transmitted and stuff that we you know like you mentioned AIDS and HIV it's it's how our lives were yeah. through the 80 you know through the 80s before they really could figure out the population that was exposed and and stuff because at first it was you know just that gay disease yeah. so so everybody else thought they were perfectly safe mm. You know, and um, and this goes for, you know, for anything, you know, like hepatitis, whatever. I mean, you can just you, you can be exposed to stuff and not quite know it. But the thought that there is a positive payoff or what people, you know, would consider a positive payoff yeah. is how, you know, how far would you go? And, you know, a really small scale is people who, you know, a lot of times you hear this about young actresses that they have to, they have to sleep with directors to get jobs or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, even though our, our image of the sort of 20s and 30s was greatly sanitized by the sort of restricted media of the time and the way that movie stars were presented, I think that's kind of always been the case. And um, if you look across the world as well, you look at like what's going on in South Korea right now and sort of Asian countries that have um, got their own kind of like, you know, Hollywood equivalent. You know, a lot of the um, stars, the female stars, have had to sort of sleep with a lot of people to get to where they're going. And there's been a few cases recently where they've sort of killed themselves because they're sort of just kind of fed up this kind of terrible treatment that they're this terrible world that they're living in, basically. So I think these themes are sort of very valid and kind of relevant and interesting and um, a good thing to sort of talk about in the sort of metaphorical way that you can do that in in a, in a comic book. Um, and that's all the superpowers of the comic book are really is they're just kind of like metaphors for for other things that are going on in in real life with the powers now are, are each of them going to each character going to have like their own manifestation of something because we see monty's i mean we see weasel's powers very easily yeah um you know he's he can he starts to like go phase through structure like phase through buildings and stuff and the effect that it has if he happens to be touching another human being you know and so are each of them having distinct power sets? Yeah, they're all different. Um, but they're all, um, as I said, they're all just extensions of their sort of personality and kind of metaphorical. Um, Weasel's very flaky, so it's decided that he's just kind of like, he's not really there and he kind of fades through things. <laughs> uh, right. that's, that's, uh, he's also very, very chaotic and that will sort of um, drive uh, how things will develop for him throughout the series. Um, and uh, Verity is just very artistic and she she's very creative and she's got this great burning ambition to be a great artist. So that sort of um, that sort of uh, um, drives how her powers develop. And uh, Monty is just incredibly narcissistic <laughs> and selfish and um, intelligent. And that, um, that drives how his um, and incredibly creative as well. And that that um that drives how his uh, powers develop. It's so interesting because when they're presented, um, you know, my first impression of Weasel is, man, he's such a dick. But then he really has, 
he has this sincere side to him that's yeah. just, you know, it, he's really, it's like, aw. Yeah, you know, I know. He's, it's, it's, he's just a little damaged. Yeah, he just, oh, yeah. he's, it's brilliant how, how much, I'm really surprised how much uh, people like Weasel, and I'm really surprised how much I like Weasel and how much uh, Mike likes Weasel as well. Because very much the, the point of that character, you've got the main sort of empathic, you know, heart of the story in Verity. So then you're trying to tell the story with sort of different sides of it. So Weasel is very much sort of, you know, you can take risks with that character and make him very unsympathetic. And he does a lot of things that are really, you know, out of order. Um, and as a writer, it's a really interesting challenge because you want to still make people kind of like be interested in the story. So it's like, how do you as a writer achieve that? Um, so you have to keep striking this balance between, um, you know, the different sides of his character and still making him a relatable human kind of being that you can empathise with and sort of show his motivations and, and so forth. Um, which is all part of just making a rounded character and a believable character because no one is, you know, inherently evil in a way that you see human beings kind of like shown in, you know, uh, movies and comics, you know, um, so, so um, yeah, it's it's just a, um, a fascinating kind of challenge as a writer to try and write that character, and then <clears throat> uh, to discover that you know he is still, <laughs> despite everything that he does, he is still uh, someone that you, you you can really like. And uh, like Mike said to me, ah, yeah, but his heart's in the right place, and I was like, no, it isn't. <laughs> He's still pretty selfish. But, but it's great that you think that because because um, you know um, uh, sometimes I think I think characters like that they're very uh, mercurial in that they'll do things one second that you know you'll think like oh his heart's in the right place but then they'll do other things sort of a few minutes later that are um, very selfish and sort of um, um, self-centered and thoughtless um, and also when you get to sort of celebrity status, it's this thing where you can get away with stuff and you can do stuff and there'll be no comeback. But you can, you know, be out of order with people and they won't sort of call you up on it. So um, I think that's uh, not healthy, not for them, not for the celebrity, but not for anybody. So um, just writing about that is, is, is kind of, it's a lot of fun. It makes for great drama, you know, really stable, happy, evenly keeled people don't really make for great drama. So uh, that also drives, I think, ooh, a lot of, you know, the sort of people that you see dominate the news media media, because because their lives are so chaotic and their decisions are so bad. You know, they have these incredible car crash lives that sort of, um, you know, leap from one thing to another, some perceived high to some terrible low. Um, and that makes great, great stories. That makes a great newspaper story. And that's why those certain people are sort of like massively famous celebrities, you know, in a way that's kind of like vastly out of tune with what they actually do for a living, which is, you know, maybe act in a sort of soap opera or something or make a few, sing on a few pop records. So, so, uh, uh, I think you see that not just in, in the sort of stories I'm writing, but across, across the world. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, you know the the last episode I I did with Tony Biello, we we talked for quite a, an extensive amount of time about celebrity worship because it's so out of control. Yeah, it's it's very much a, I think in the same way that we look back at like the Victorians and some of the things that they did and laugh, I think people in the future centuries will look back on on us and our 
incredible uh, infatuation with celebrity and find it really odd and kind of disturbing. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Like, why don't we pay this much attention to scientists? Yeah, that, that the age of reason seems to have gone. Like, uh, it's the age of mumbo jumbo now. So, so sort of like uh, there was this great uh, movement really in the twentieth century. So, at the end of the nineteenth century through the twentieth century, that science was going to have the answers to everything. Science was the way forward, and that's really fallen by the wayside now, which is a great shame because uh, you know clearly. Science has a lot. <laughs> science has a lot going for it. I mean, all science actually means is the analytical study of things uh, to draw kind of like logical conclusions. So anyone that thinks that science isn't a good idea or doesn't have the sort of the soundest answers about the world around us is is, is severely deluded. Yeah, we have a lot of those crazies here in this country. I'm not sure about yours. I know. It's. Uh, it's. A, I think it's a perfect storm of like. Just the, I mean, these things always move in phases, but also just the way that um, social media has kind of exploded and it gives like these kind of like really kind of fringe kind of extreme opinions, this huge kind of platform and they get sort of noticed way beyond the actual number of people that kind of believe in it. If you kind of had a sort of a media or an internet that just reflected the exact proportions of what everyone believed in, it would probably be a very sort of quiet and ordered and fairly sort of unanimous place but what makes good what gets hits or what gets people to buy your your magazine is kind of the extreme opinions. so they they're all around us in ways that kind of aren't actually representative of what most people think i think because it's it sort of makes a good story so uh yeah i think that's why you see a lot of the sort of crazier kind of uh theories getting so much prominence at the moment I'd have to agree with you because, I mean, there's no, I don't know if there's any particular statistics of how many people here, uh, I mean, at least in, in America, we always we always think of it as a particular part of like the South. I don't know why we always think of it as the South as being uneducated and that they don't believe in um, evolution and people that, you know, around the new year, they truly believe that the earth itself is only 2000 years old. Yeah. And, um I don't know I I don't know if there's a way to quantify that and um it, and know specifically like you said what the population difference is is like no we really have 90% of the people know what the hell they're talking about and it's just a small group that's kind of you know whacked out and and caught up in their religious fervor of of whatever. And it's basically about even, uh, I mean, I believe in science, um, but it's basically, it's all just an act of faith, isn't it? In that I can't personally prove, I don't have the scientific skills to personally prove that the Earth is as old as, you know, it's it's uh, proven to be through science. But I have faith in the scientists that have proven that. So really, it does all eventually come down to, to faith in that what you choose to have faith in. And I choose to have faith in science. Uh, oh, I agree completely. Other people have faith in other, you know, in, in, in God or other theories. And, you know, they can't prove that either themselves, but they believe that somebody else kind of can. So, Right, because you're just looking at one document and saying, <coughs> you know, but this person wrote this, and then another document saying, but this person wrote this, and, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, if we all uh, had to go around personally proving everything that we believe in, <laughs> oh, yeah. never do anything else, so... Yeah. But, you know, you have to have uh, faith in, in some okay. level, whatever your kind of uh, your, your your opinions. 
I would like to just personally prove that vodka is delicious. <laughs> oh, I think I proved that nightly. Yeah, fantastic. See, I we had a power outage here uh, when a, a snowplow hit a utility pole. So around like 1230 at night, I was in front of the fireplace drinking some Jack Daniels with my folks and the cat. We were just like hovering around the fire. Um, so I, I've proved that Jack Daniels is a quality product, I think, because it got me through the night. Yeah, well done through 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 living the life. Yeah, that was my hypothesis. I presented around 11.30, and by 1 o'clock, it was proven to be true. Yes, well done. <laughs> See, I'm a scientist. You are a scientist of, <laughs> a scientist of, of Jack Daniels. <laughs> so when it comes to death sentence and the process of making the book and getting it out there, I know that we were raving about Titan Comics. Uh, how, how did that happen? How did you get uh, – did you, did you see that they had a submission process and you pitched – to them yeah um well the reason why i made death sentence was because i was hugely frustrated at the fact that i was writing what i saw as like really good stories you know obviously i could have been seriously deluded um and um you know you can't get them published you can't get anyone to look at them you can't get anyone to acknowledge in any way that they're like might be good so you just think eventually you just think oh fuck this i'm just gonna like do my own thing i'm just gonna publish this i believe this is a really good story I'm going to publish this story and be damned with the consequences. Um, so it's really just like frustration that kind of like eventually drove me into sort of self-publishing. Um, and then having done that, you sort of like think, well, I'm, I'm spending a lot of money like making this, this comic and I want as many people as possible to buy it. So you have to like go and like show it to people um, and sort of like try and get them interested in it. So as part of that, I went to like um, a convention, uh, the Cabal Convention, which is a big convention in in London, more more like the New York Comic Con, um, and uh, just started showing it around to people. Um, and one of those people was um, the owner of Titan, Nick Landau, and uh, another person that I managed to show it to on the following day was Mark Miller, who who um, organised the Cabal Con and also was doing a comic with Titan at the time called Clint. Um, and of all the people that saw the comic over the weekend, they were probably the most enthusiastic about it. Um, and they kind of got in touch with me shortly afterwards and um, offered uh, to sort of serialise it in uh, Clint magazine, which was the thing that Mark Miller and uh, Nick were doing together. Uh, and that didn't interest me at the time because I was wanting to self-publish it, and I just really wanted to know what, kind of people thought about it and, and um, try and get as much interest as possible in it. Um, and I was, I was talking to Diamond, who distribute comics around the world. He was okay. saying that if you sort of serialised it, it would affect your sales as how it would sell through the comic shops. So I'm sure that's what they think, because then they wouldn't be making, they wouldn't be making sales through the individual issues of the comic. They'd only be able to make money off of Clint magazine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I sort of had that in my mind as well. Um, and then as I carried on with the process of trying to like publish my own comic, you realize that by this time I'd sort of shown it to so many people and I've got a lot of feedback. And I was getting a sense from people, the feedback was that, you know, people really, really liked it. And it was, it was a good, good comic. So I was pleased about that. But then you get into this issue of like, okay, I'm going to like print, you know, maybe two, three thousand copies and get Diamond to distribute those around the world. And 
you've got to get common shops to order it and you've got to get people to buy it. And obviously no one has a clue who you are. And um, there's no sense, um, as, as I think a lot of creative people would tell you, there's no sense that just because you make something that's good that people are going to buy it or, or know about it. Um, there's a whole other side to sort of having a um, to selling something, which is that um, you need, it needs to be marketed. People need to be aware of it. Um, the, there's all these channels of distribution that kind of like uh, Marvel and uh, Image have been doing for like you know 20 years, and they kind of have the whole thing sewn up. So, so it's very difficult to get any kind of attention or any kind of like interest in like a self-published comic, even if it's good. You might get a few nice reviews online, but people just aren't going to know about it and they aren't going to go and buy it in the sort of volumes that you need to make it uh, an ongoing proposition. So so after sort of finding all this out, I thought, well, actually, in that case, probably running it as a serialization in print magazine will be a really good thing because it'll get a lot of attention, it'll get a lot of coverage, it'll reach a, a, a much wider audience, uh, and then um, uh, that will probably help sales of the eventual comic when it comes out um so that's what i eventually decided so i got back in touch with with uh titan comics and said well yeah i'd like to do that that serialization if, if the author's still there so we did that uh and that went very well it went down very well with the audience uh they got some really nice feedback sort of through the letters page and so forth and through social media about people that saw it in there and people that like it really like it. They really, really get excited about it, and they really kind of enthuse and tell their friends. And and uh, um, you know, it's a, it's not like it's not comic like anything else. So so it has that kind of like impact with people if they do like it. Um, and then that all led through into uh, it coming out as a as a, a single issue uh, six part series, which we're now on issue four of six. So the issue five will be out in February and issue six will be out in March 2014. Um, and that's uh, that's the first um, graphic novel in the story. And um, uh, by this time, I'd sort of dealt with Titan and I found them very, very like good to deal with, very straightforward. Um, and like I said, very enthusiastic and, and uh, they are, they know a lot about comics. I mean, Nick, who, who uh, owns the company, he's he's like a comics guy from way back, you know, he started the first Forbidden Planet store and he kind of like, he knows everybody in comics, uh, you know, worth knowing going back sort of like 40 years. Um, he used to edit 2000 AD for a little bit. You know, he's got an incredible depth of knowledge about, you know, comics and what makes it a comic and how to sell comics. So I just thought, well, you know, these guys are probably going to make a much better fist of publishing a comic than I would. And also, as a creator, you just want to create the thing. You want to, you want to write it, and you want to, you know, do the covers and stuff. You don't want to spend half your life trying to sell a product. So um, yeah, we eventually figured out a deal where you know they could publish it, and I, uh, me and Mike, would make it. Yeah, I really loved uh, the the marketing of it when they send out hard copies because obviously you can you can get digital copies and i don't know if the marketing of that if if there's any particular way to reach out digitally that that's different than what they did but when uh ricky sent me a package in the mail and it there's this letter that looks like this very official letter Mm. addressed personally like to me and 
it's like, you know, congratulations, you do not have the G-virus, you have tested negative, and blah, blah, and it was like this, it's very authentic looking. And I, I didn't know if that came from Titan, if that came from you and Mike saying, you know, here's what we should do to, you know, to get people's attention in the mail. I don't know where that came from, but I thought it was like absolutely brilliant. And I, you know, I made sure immediately after I, after I was like, oh my God, what is this? What was I tested for? Uh, <laughs> after that, after the brief shock, I went on Twitter immediately and I was like, oh, you guys. <laughs> yeah, that was very cool. That was Owen and Ricky who work for Titan. And uh, like I said, they're very enthusiastic and uh, good at what they do. Um, and it kind of ties in, they've really bought into the kind of like, uh, series and the sort of um, the ethos of the of the comic in that the original the first, one of the first things I did actually when I started making the comic was I made a, a website for a, um, a, a kind of STD kind of information health website um, that had like all the sort of information about all the different sexual transmitted diseases and also G plus which is the, the virus that in, in our comic and it was all kind of like very realistic. There was nothing about comics in it. It was just all just like a really realistic. It's real good viral viral marketing. Viral, hey, pun, a pun, unintentional. And it had like uh, a credible kind of sort of web address, which was uh, sexhealth.org.uk, and um, it was just part of the vibe that I wanted to bring a, bring to the comic, which is, was to make it, like I said, very real and very relatable. Um, and uh, that sort of carried through into into the way that the comic um, kind of was written and, and created and and so forth, the graphic design around it, but also Mike's art and everything. Everybody kind of bought into that ethos. And then uh, um, Ricky and Owen, when they did the sort of like big push to sort of get people to review it and kind of uh, talk about it, is they obviously kind of came out with this great idea with the, the letter you got, which was uh, really cool. It was really well done, I thought. So you've got the six issues um, together for, for this. Will there be more? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really uh, hoping there'll be more, and I'm, uh, I'm working behind the scenes to, to try and get that, get that, uh, get that settled. Um, the, uh, we've got to wait and see exactly how it kind of sells and kind of um, things like that. So hopefully we should find out in the next uh, couple of months, um, by March, uh, hopefully, exactly where we sort of stand with it. Um, but it looks very positive at the moment. I mean, it's sold a lot better than uh, everyone was expecting. Um, it's sort of sold out and we had to reprint, you know, an extra 5,000 or so forth. Um, so, so it's sold um, really well. And that's uh, really heartening. So it looks it looks quite positive at the moment. That's great news. Um, where can people buy the book right now? Um, you can get it from any comic shop, any comic shop in the world, um, or you can get it from Comicsology. Um, comes out the same day in comic shops and in Comicsology. And um, like I said, we reprinted because it sold out. We reprinted uh, issue one, two, and three. Um, so there's lots of copies of those that you can go and sort of order the whole series. So it's not like you'll just be able to get, you know, the latest issue if you go into a comic shop. They'll be able to order the whole thing for you if you want to want to read it and see what all the fuss is about. Because 
some of the reviews have been, you know, really quite humbling in their sort of praise and so forth. So um, if you like, if you like good comics that are like really sort of well told, as far as it doesn't really matter what the subject is, it's just a matter of like using the sort of sequential techniques to sort of tell a really good story in the medium of comics. Um, that's what I like to see uh, when I read a comic. It's just someone that really understands how to tell a good story. Uh, with the sort of comic format and make good use of the things that you can only do in comics. So that's what Mike and I are always trying to do, and um, we spend a lot of time on it. Um, we don't just sort of like <clears throat> do our bit and then sign off it and move on to something else. We're always kind of like reading back what we've done and like analysing it and thinking like, well, maybe if we just tweaked this line here or maybe if we just sort of change that panel there, then it will kind of like work even better so um yeah if you if you if you if you're a fan of like good sequentials it's definitely something worth checking out i think i know that it was uh it was really cool for me because i knew i knew how much i liked the book that when at the end of the year people start coming out with their their best of lists and favorite things that, that they saw for the year when i would start seeing death sentence pop up on other blogs yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh, cool! It's the words getting out there, and people are noticing. Yeah, it was very heartening. It was very heartening. It's 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 still a very tricky thing. I mean, people probably think of Death Sentence as like an overnight success, but you know, we've been working on it for years, and um, building up the the level of interest is um, is uh, it's very very time consuming. Um, the way that um, kind of word spreads and so forth, but it's definitely gathering momentum. And um, every time I sort of go to a con or kind of engage with people online there just seems to be more and more people that seem to be kind of uh hearing about it and um when they do read it they really like it um so forth obviously the thing about the internet these days is everyone lives in a bubble right so <laughs> i think the republican party had this problem in the recent election in america whereas everybody lives in a bubble where the only feedback they're getting is kind of relating to their kind of interests and like right, so, the, so that's all they see. Yeah, all they're hearing is like how great how great they are. So probably the people that hate defendants don't kind of bother to get in touch with me, <laughs> which is a shame because I I I I would, uh, I always welcome like critical opinions that are kind of um, illuminating or informative and can sort of help you be a better writer or a better better artist. So I'm always interested in people that don't like it, but unfortunately I just don't seem to ever hear from those people. So um, uh, I, did, I have I have looked I have looked for people that have written reviews of Death Sentence where they hate it, but I haven't found, <laughs> I haven't found any. So so um, that's a shame. <laughs> well, but speaking of telling good stories and learning the elements that you think make good sequential storytelling, where did you learn this? Um, I think I've always been everybody's good at something, and I'm, I've always been very good at writing. Um, and sort of understanding kind of literature and other, you know, books. I've always, as a kid growing up, I was always reading books like, you know, much older than my age and so forth. And um, I did like my uh, English um, my exams like a year early and all those kind of that kind of thing. So I've just always been really good at uh, literature, the literature side, very much the literature side, right, the storytelling side, rather than you know just like the the science of language, which um, I'm not I'm not particularly great at. But um, the uh, so I think it's just something that I'm I'm naturally good at. And then when you're reading these things, um, I think my theory is that people 
Well, certainly my experience. I grew up reading comics just as I grew up reading books. Um, there wasn't really any differentiation. It's all kind of like just interesting stuff to, to read in your bed uh, before you go to sleep. And, and um, there's this sort of theory that people don't uh, read comics because they don't understand them or they're not familiar with the sort of syntax or the sort of grammar of them. And I don't hold to that theory at all. Because if you look around you, there's comics in every newspaper. You know, there's comics. Uh, people, most people grow up reading comics when they're a kid. Um, and I, I, I had the theory, one of the reasons why I wanted to do Death Sentence was that I thought that one of the reasons, like, mainstream uh, comics aren't such a huge mainstream kind of uh, media is because there's just not the kind of subject matter and the sort of um, uh, uh, intelligence to the sort of um, uh, comics that are uh, available in most comic shops that m- make people think that this is something that's relevant to my life. You know, especially with the way a lot of the things are presented in the, in the, in the visuals and the character designs and so forth. Um, I think they think like um, this looks like something that I would have read when I was sort of like, uh, you know, growing up. Um, and if they actually cracked it open and like had a read of it and gave it a chance, they might find that actually there's a lot of good stuff in there. But it's just not kind of like resonating with them. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do take the approach that I took with Death Sentence was to make it a lot more kind of um, just something that would relate to my life as an adult. Uh, in the presentation and the way it's sort of like uh, the story's told and so forth and the character designs, nobody's wearing like costumes, they're all just wearing like clothes, you know, normal clothes um, and uh, all that kind of stuff. So so um, I think uh, growing up, you just sort of like reading these comics and they're all like fantastic comics. Like if you read like Asterix the Gold, the, the sophistication of that comic, if you analyse it technically, it, it's really, really, really sophisticated. The way the storytelling is, is and things that are applied and the humour and stuff, it's it's really clever. Um, and then you go on as you get to be like sort of like twelve or thirteen, you start to read like you know, Watchmen on the the Dark Knight or something, and obviously that has um, another level of sophistication to it. The the way that you know the various elements of the captions and the 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 gaps between the panels and the and the and the dialogue and the visuals all kind of work together to tell a story. And I think when you grow up reading that, you just take that for granted. I never thought, oh, Watchmen's a huge groundbreaking kind of thing. I just thought, well, this is a com- this is pretty much the first graphic novel I've ever read, and it's good, and I understand it. And where's the rest? And then you look around, and there's just not that depth of literature that you can sort of dive into it's better now there's a lot much there's much more depth to the sort of um type of sort of graphic novels that are around now um but um i think certainly i think as far as how to figure out how to do it if you're paying attention to what you're reading and like not just reading it but also analyzing it as you read it then then it's very easy to sort of pick up you know how these things work so what sort of comics, then, are you reading now? Um, I don't read a huge amount of comics. Um, at the moment, I'm greatly enjoying Hawkeye. Um, I think that's a really, really well-put-together comic, um, both the art and the writing, the dialogue, the sort of themes, uh, the concept, the whole thing is, is kind of really satisfying. That's really good. Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, INJ Colbard, lately he's done sort of um 
uh, work for Self Made Hero and so forth. Um, I really like his stuff. He writes and draws. And he's done a lot of Lovecraft adaptions and um, he's done some good stuff uh, for 2008. Um, and uh, um, I read uh, The Underwater Welder lately. That was that was good. Yeah, I did read that quite a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, and um, but um, I'm always reading. I'm always reading. I think when I was doing Dissonance, I was very, very, I very much didn't want to be influenced by anybody else, so I didn't really read anything while I was writing it. Um, but because uh, I finished writing it now, I can like go back and read a lot of the great comics that have been sort of out over the last couple of years. So um, that's why I went back and kind of got into Hawkeye because everyone was sort of raving about it. So that was really cool. Um, and I read, probably read more books than I do comics. I'm usually reading sort of four or five books at a time and maybe a couple of comics or something at a time. So it's always, um, it's always, uh, I think if you're a writer, you've got to have that input. You've got to be constantly getting inputs and, um, you know, you've got to be doing things as well, going out and doing things. Otherwise, um, it's very difficult to sort of come up with a steady flow of good ideas. If all you're doing is sitting at your desk and making comics, then I think your ideas are going to become quite narrow and uh, not very interesting. So, uh, yeah. Um, and also, practically, I always like to read uh, text. I find that if I read comics before I go to bed, uh, it's too stimulating. It doesn't make me sleepy. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Because I, uh, I used to not sleep well if I was up playing video games. Yeah, yeah, I think... I, I definitely, I slept terribly. I just basically, my brain wouldn't shut off. Yeah, I think, um, if you want to sleep well, I sleep pretty well. And uh, before, the sort of hour before you go to bed, you shouldn't be doing anything on your phone. On your... That's what they say, yeah. They say for an hour. Or, uh, or, or, and I find comics as well. I read comics, it's just too visually stimulating and I, I can't sleep. Um, so I tend to read a lot of um, books before I go to sleep, um, which is a good time to, to, to do that. That's great. Well, where can people keep track of you and then keep their, you know, for announcements on death sentence and other things that you, that you might be doing? Um, well, I'm on I'm online at uh, Facebook, uh, Montenero, um, which is two different words on Facebook, because that's the way Facebook is kind of structured, sort of first and last name. Yeah. Twitter, Montenero, at Montenero is one word. Uh, and then I've got a website, which is uh, www.montenero.com, uh, and a blog, uh, which is Monty Comics, um, which uh, most of the time, though, I tend to uh, just use Twitter to sort of update things, and and then uh, I'll occasionally sort of dive into these, these other things. Oh, I've got an email as well. I've got like an email uh, update that I send out sort of every sort of month or two. Um, just about things I'm working on and uh, stuff like that. Maybe send some like uh, uh, behind the scenes sort of like uh, art or kind of like progress kind of sketches of like how I kind of came up with a cover or something. Um, so <clears throat> if you want that, you just sort of drop me a line and I'll send that out. Send that out. In a sort of very semi-regular <laughs> basis. I think, I think uh, people don't really complain about spam with my email. They more complain about the fact that I don't tend to send it very often. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice switch. Yeah. 
Monty, thank you so much for, for the time and working out our schedules with the time zones and everything. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. I hope I wasn't too boring. Oh, goodness, now. This was, this was perfect. Yeah, you're very charming. Well, it's been, it's been fun. Thanks. And you guys can, of course, follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter and everything else is at AmberOnMath.com. Um, so don't forget to, to send us, tweet us some feedback of the show. Tell us how much you, you liked it. And, you know, tell Monty that you definitely want to see more of his storytelling because it's uh, wonderful and, and brilliant and exciting. So um, thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Bye.